a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Eight Reminders. In this episode, we've heard already from John Sade, the CEO of the largest producer of vegetables in Australia. And we've also heard from Professor Diane Vandenbroek about the situation as regards the use of labour in the horticultural industry. So what is the reaction and response from the horticultural industry? Ausveg is the prescribed peak industry body for the Australian vegetable and potato industries and is the leading horticultural body representing Australian growers. Their CEO is James Whiteside. James brings a vast level of local and international agribusiness expertise to the industry, having worked for 23 years, including senior global positions for Insight Tech Pivot. He's also a director for Agribusiness Australia. Welcome to Agriminders, James. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. James, just tell us a bit about horticulture. I, I, you're sort of moved into that job from uh, having a cast of thousands and a turnover of billions to being really in a peak industry body for, for Australia. What is horticulture facing in the future and, and where's Ausveg's place in that future? The horticulture industry makes a fabulous product. It's a very noble industry and we should be incredibly proud uh, of the quality and provenance of Australian horticulture from mangoes in the top end to potatoes in Tasmania. We do make a wonderful product. We make a product where there is inevitable growth in demand. The demand for uh, food to feed an ever-growing population uh, is insatiable. And I think most importantly for horticulture, we're going to benefit from the fact that there will be, over time, a swing away from animal-based to plant-based foods for a variety of reasons. And so the future of plant-based foods, particularly uh, vegetables, pulses and nuts, is really quite exciting. So you know, in terms of the broader thematics around the product, around the horticultural industry, I think the future's never been brighter. So in terms of getting that fruit and vegetable from the producer, who clearly is doing an outstanding job at producing it, getting it picked and to the market, you're highly dependent on labour. In fact, if you look at the average costs of all the elements of getting a fruit and veg to market in Australia, by far the biggest cost on a per farm basis is the labour and particularly the labour in picking the fruit or vegetables. And this is, seems to have become completely dependent on this kind of dodgy source of uh, either holiday, working holiday visas or um, visas from uh, overseas where they're brought in to teach them something extra or temporary visas. But it's not based on any kind of solid workforce like most other parts of agriculture are. Look, that's true. I'm not sure that I'd use the word dodgy, but let's and let's come back to that labour issue in a minute. I think you're absolutely right to say that the industry has some significant headwinds. We are, uh, you know, some of the challenges we have is around, you know, managing supply and demand to make sure that growers get adequate returns on their investment. And, you know, we see, for example, because it's a relatively unstructured industry that every time we have a period of relatively high prices, that production increases and so prices come crashing down again. 
We do have a relentless increase in a number of costs, which goes to the price that the consumer pays in Australia and also affects our global competitiveness. And labour is a big chunk of that, but energy and water are other also incredibly important inputs, which are rapidly increasing in price. And we also have this, you know, this, this ongoing imbalance between the power of buyers and sellers and the powers of the supermarkets over the individual growers, which is a structural issue that we need to address. But on the subject of labour, we do uh, suffer from the fact that we have a high requirement for labour. It's a labour-intensive industry. We have a number of tasks that need to be done where it's clear that Australians often don't like to do that work because of its, its manual nature. And so we are reliant on overseas labour. And we need to make sure that we set that up and take advantage of the opportunity that that actually provides our our uh, international neighbours and so that it is legitimate, it's not dodgy, and that growers do have access to a long-term, reliable, sustainable workforce. And that's certainly where our focus is. James, um, I, I use the word dodgy advisedly because I've just finished reading a paper produced um, out of the University of Adelaide, but with contributors and authors from all over Australia. And in fact, I will be talking to Dr. Diane Vandenbroek, one of the authors uh, in another part of this episode. But that paper actually states a number of things which I, you'd have to say are at best uh, dubious. Ignorance of the correct pay rates by growers, being unable to afford the correct pay rates, paying different wages for the same work to different cohorts of workers, paying different wages to the same workers over a period of time, paying cash in hand, low peace rates based on inflated assumptions of the competence of the workers, unpaid work, unfair sacking, lack of training, lack of work health and safety training. These are all the hallmarks of an industry which seems to be immune to the same pressures that nearly every other business in Australia would have. Well, we're not immune from the same pressures. And what I would say is that, that work actually was largely funded by the industry, largely funded by growers, so that we can actually get the fact base and actually understand what we're dealing with. And the and the report has identified a number of practices which are simply unacceptable and has demonstrated that there is a gap between what the good growers are doing, the growers that understand their obligations and are willing and accept their, op- the, their requirement to, to pay and treat people as they are entitled to be and they should be, from the fact that a number of growers who choose not to do the right thing. And so it really, that sort of data really helps us have a conversation with the growers around what's acceptable and what is not, to have a conversation with the government about how the visa settings and the workplace relations rules should be managed so that we can eliminate that sort of practice. And so that we can also have a conversation with customers like supermarkets about making sure that they have appropriate processes in place so that they can only buy from those growers that are doing the right thing. So this is great data. It's a great opportunity that that report presents for us to improve, to lift our game. And we would be the first to acknowledge that there are a number of elements in how growers engage uh, employees employees that need to be fixed. Can I come back to the solutions? But one of the one of the concerns for me is that even if we did have a push towards what you're suggesting there, and even if this just was profiteering and, and it was just it was unnecessary, it was just people trying to do the wrong thing, that's not borne out by the fact that 63% of the respondents to the survey said that if they were not able to get enough workers at the rates that they're paying for these uh, itinerant workers, they would actually leave the vegetables unpicked rather than just offer more money. 
that implies to me that they become dependent on that low rate of pay in order to be able to for their business to survive. A la- very labour-intensive industry needs to have labour available, and a number in a number of cases, crops go unpicked because people farmers simply can't find the labour that they need to pick the crop. Now, if they can only pick that crop by paying uh, that labour below award wages, wages or treating them improperly, well, frankly, they shouldn't be in production. So what sort of provenance and transparency do we need to kind of bring this to the surface and get rid of it, do you think? Well, the conversation that we've been having in the industry is a three-pronged one. Firstly, it's around talking with the government around what are the appropriate settings to visas to allow the industry to access a vibrant, sustainable, engaged workforce to the extent where we can't get those people in Australia. And obviously our preference always is to employ Australians because it's easier, cheaper and and in the national interest. There is also a conversation with the channel, the supermarkets around putting in place practices to make sure that they only buy from growers that they who can demonstrate that they're doing the right thing. And so the major supermarkets are putting in place quality assurance programs to do that. And they're obviously very mindful of their corporate social responsibility obligations and are applying that sort of ethical sourcing to all of their activities. And then the third prong is talking to growers about what their obligations are as employers. And there is a program called Fair Farms, which has been initiated by GROCOM, the Queensland Horticultural Group, which is now being rolled out nationally with some funding from the federal government and also from Ausfeg, which is all about training growers in what their legal obligation as employers are and, and providing them with the wherewithal and the skills and the resources to make sure that they can go and engage with the workforce and employ them as they should. And so to the extent that growers have that that knowledge and experience, you know, we expect that the terrible stories of growers doing the wrong thing that the, you know those stories should be consigned to history because it's simply not how we're going to build a long term vibrant sustainable industry. James, is there a problem in the fact that the industry has expanded so quickly and the pressure from the supermarkets has become so centralised that, in fact, you know, the, uh, the OH&S enforcement, the labour conditions and the monitoring has just not been able to keep up with this increase in demand and this increase in pressure from the supermarkets? Oh, look, I think... There's no doubt that the supermarkets do a very good job of advocating for the consumer and because they are small in number, they are strong and powerful and competent negotiators, so that hasn't, hasn't, doesn't help. But I think also that, you know, this is a symptom of the fact that Australia is a very lucky country. We are a, a relatively rich country. Um, we have high wages. We have a number of tasks, not just in horticulture, but in a number of other industries and a number of those industries that are regionally based where we simply can't get Australians to do the work. And now that presents a fabulous opportunity, I think. So rather than seeing it as a problem, I think we should be thinking of it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to engage with our regional neighbours, to bring people to Australia that want to work, that have the skills on working on farm, that have got a strong work ethic, that have the physical capability of doing the work and come away with the first world wage to take back with newfound skills back to their own country. Now that presents a fabulous social welfare opportunity for Australia to share its relative affluence with people in the region. So if we can get all those settings that I talked about right, this should not be 
a problem for the country. It should be a fabulous opportunity. Well, that's right. I've heard you a couple of times talk about equality and first world wages, but are you confident that the industry can afford first world wages and still provide a product in that volume that, that the supermarkets and the other purchasers are going to be prepared to take the increase in price to cover that? Well, look, I think that there is, because we are a country where we have high wages and there's a lot of pressure for wages to go up, um, labour-intensive industries are exposed. And so a couple of things will happen. Firstly, there is a a significant um, search and investment for technology that takes labour out. So the fact the fact of the matter is that growers in their request to remain competitive will be are looking for opportunities of taking labour out both in the paddock and in the packing shed. And that's you know, that's just a function of the fact that labour is so costly. So over time I think on a you know per hectare basis we we're actually going to find that demand for labour go down, but that requires capital, it requires technology, investment, new skills. So the needs of the industry are, are going to change to address that threat. And when you look at our global competitiveness, you know, our high labour costs are absolutely holding us back. And again, not just in horticulture, but in a whole range of industries. So again, it's the price you pay for being an affluent country and for a country where we expect our standard of living to always go up is that we do lose competitiveness in a number of markets where we have a high requirement for labour. So the measures that the government have brought in, things like um, this extra year that you can now get as from the end of last year on your working visa as a student if you do another 88 days of regional work and those sort of things, are they helpful, do you think? Are they likely to be a solution or do you think they're just pushing us further down the same track? Well, I think, as I said before, I think the solution requires access to overseas labour and requires a number of elements to it. So changing those changes, recent changes to um, to backpacker visas to allow grow, uh, visitors to stay for a third year if they work in regional areas is a useful step. It doesn't solve the problem, but it's a useful step. But more what's with the through the NFF, the industry's been calling for an agriculture visa. And that really is, I guess, a cry for the fact that we haven't solved the problem. We need we need a greater access to people because we still the, the shortage is still chronic. Um, and so until we get the right visa settings in place and we have a consistent, reliable, sustainable supply, we need to continue to engage with, with the government to make sure that the visa settings are modified further to allow the industry access to the labour force it's entitled to. In terms of encouraging and advertising to Australian workers, sure, there are grey nomads who are happy to go out and do a bit when they're travelling and and there are students perhaps able to go out and put up with whatever conditions just to earn a few bob and enjoy the travels. But in terms of permanent skilled labour and people committing to a career uh, working in, uh, in in horticulture, within agriculture... Is there more advertising necessary? Are there more initiatives needed, maybe even from Ausveg, to to say, come and join us, uh, find your career in in this uh, worthwhile business? That's a great question. We've been talking about primarily farm labour and, and what we slightly unkindly call unskilled labour, but there is also a chronic shortage of a bunch of skills, again, not just in horticulture, but through, through regional Australia. Things like agronomists, irrigation technologists, diesel mechanics, tractor drivers, uh, nursery men and women, all these, all these skills that we need to capitalise on the opportunity 
are skills that are in short supply. And so, and that's complicated because you have to go back and find the root cause. And, and the root cause seems to be that agriculture is slipping in terms of a, a priority and a focus uh, in our secondary and tertiary education systems. People in the city seem to be becoming more disengaged in agriculture than they have been in the past. And so it's a real challenge uh, and it's a real problem and it's going to require a lot of effort from groups like us, but also from governments, uh, education departments, and actually changing the mindset of young people so that they see um, agriculture, and in our case we're talking about horticulture, as the vibrant industry it is in which people can have fabulous career opportunities. So can we go? Can we turn to New Zealand for ideas? They've got this recognised seasonal employer scheme, the RSE, which I think globally seems to be seen as best practice. And it's interesting that their uh, ratio of seasonal workers to working holidaymakers, that's like backpackers, is one to two, whereas in Australia it's one to ten. Look, I think we can look to New Zealand for all sorts of learnings. Uh, you know, one of the great competitive advantages New Zealand has is that it doesn't have two tiers of government. So we don't have states and federal governments that need to cooperate like we do in Australia. The, the complexity that having a federated model in Australia brings us is enormous. So that's one perspective. The other one is that obviously agriculture is a much bigger chunk of the New Zealand economy. So it's front and centre in every discussion that industry has with government at all levels. But I think the New Zealand industry, that, that example that you've quoted is a great example where the New Zealand industry has got together and engaged with the government more constructively than we have in Australia about how it is that we're going to access a, a labour force, how it is that we're going to manage the expectations of the broader community about bringing um, migrants into, our, into the country, how we're going to manage some of the risks associated with bringing people in and how we're going to make sure that they're protected and that they go away having had a fabulous experience and with their pockets full of money. So I think the New Zealand example is a good one that we can learn from. Of course, they look to us as actually a competitor for labour. We have high labour rates. So a number of the markets that they access labour for, Pacific Islands, um, a lot of those workers would sooner come to Australia in pursuit of higher wages than, than New Zealand. So, um, you know, they actually see us as a competitor for labour, but they do it. they do it well as they do in much of agriculture. So, James, maybe we could finish up. You know, if you were made Minister for Agriculture and Immigration tomorrow, both roles, and you were given three carte blanche things you could do to solve this problem, what would you do? Well, look, what I would do is very clearly work with industry to define the problem and make sure that we had the right data and the right metric, the right data to help us guide our policy. I would then make sure that my public servants, the people who are in, in those government departments in Canberra, were absolutely aware of the issue because we do find sometimes that there's a gap between what the politicians who, to their credit, get out and see and talk to people and get on farm uh, and actually understand the problem. There's a gap between their understanding of the problem and some of the bureaucrats that are required to solve the problems. So making sure that governments uh, and government departments are, are mandated and equipped to to solve the problem is important. And then I would I would very quickly put in place a bunch of visa settings that would allow people to come here safely, uh, protecting our national interest, and make and work with industry so that those people could be supported, protected, appropriately paid, and so, so that when they go home, they're willing to come back again um, when the next opportunity arises. Sounds good, James. I'll vote for you. Thank you very much for being our agriminder today. Thanks very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. 
So it would seem that the horticultural industry, even if reluctantly so, is dependent on a labour supply that is fraught with unacceptable employment conditions and the loss of independence of workers to make choices due to visa restrictions and some unscrupulous intermediaries. The visa system provides significant benefits both to developing Pacific Island countries in terms of both training and family income and also to young people from overseas countries who are looking to experience our lifestyle and the new vistas both in lifestyle and community values that Australia offers. In addition, the reciprocal arrangements with these countries means that our young Australian men and women can broaden their horizons and gain affordable overseas experience under similar working visas. Both James and John have indicated that the vegetable industry in particular is almost entirely dependent on this labour for its ability to grow, plant and harvest their produce in the absence of mechanised methods to minimise the necessity for this hard labour-intensive work that Australians just don't seem prepared to do. Yet this labour source must be under threat due to the actions of unscrupulous middlemen and women who exploit the vulnerability of these workers under the conditions of their visas to extract unreasonable sign-up fees and financial deductions for accommodation and transport. These modern slavery-like conditions are clearly unacceptable and an embarrassment to Australia. So what's the solution? I'd like to suggest as follows. Firstly, labour hire companies should be licensed and audited with the risk of losing that licence. Secondly, bonded visas should be eliminated and perhaps a similar model to the New Zealand system introduced which allows workers to make at least one change of employer if they're uncomfortable in the workplace they find themselves. Thirdly, hours of work need to be recorded at all workplaces to allow assessment of adequate hourly rates, regardless of any piecework incentives that may be being offered. Accommodation deductions must be capped, and transport deductions need to be reviewed. And finally, we need government funding to shire councils in key regional areas to provide contact points for overseas workers so that they can set up arrangements with producers directly without the need for labour hire companies if they don't choose to use them. While I understand that we're under great pressure to feed the world over the next 50 years, we should never let trying to solve this problem be at the expense of the fair and humane treatment of others. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.